You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. And so I want to invite you now, as is our custom, to open the Bible as we have committed as a church on a, on a regular basis to walk through books of the Bible. This summer we've been in the Psalms, that is the 150 poems or songs or hymns or prayers that are in the middle of the Bible as you'll find it. So if you don't have a, a smartphone or a Bible of your own, please do me a favor, you'll, you'll see a paperback Bible in the tray and the chair in front of you. I want you to join me there. Don't be afraid of the table of contents. Welcome uh, to new and uncharted territory for you, and, and we, get to, we get to rejoice that whether this is the first, first or the 10,000th time you've opened a Bible, there is, there is good news for us to find. And so, so we'll be in the 69th of those 150 Psalms for the third week in a row. We'll wrap up our time there. I'll read through it uh, to begin our time, and, and we'll kind of recap where we've been over the last couple of weeks, and, and we'll spend most of our time beginning in verse 29 through the very end of that Psalm. And so if you'll make your way there to the 69th Psalm, I'll give you a little bit of a recap while you're making your way there. The, the last couple of weeks, we've seen this, what I'll say is a composite psalm, right? If, if you think about songs as you, as you understand them or poems as you understand them, they might, be, they might fit into genres, right? There are songs that are, they fit into the genre that, it's, that has more to do with style, but also kind of has a little bit to do with content, right? Think about, think about country music. Think about pop, R&B, right? Think about hip-hop. Think about right? Classical music. Already you, you begin to think about, oh, I think I know kind of what that's like. I kind of know what that sounds like. And I kind of know the typical, not always, but the typical, typical topics that are found in them. Well, over a third of the Psalms here are songs of lament. That is, they're the blues. They are crying out to God in sorrow for feeling the distress and, and suffering that comes with living in a world that's fallen and broken and marred by sin. And so in this psalm, you find something of a composite. That is, it's crying out to God in the first parts. And, and then we see what, what we call as an imprecatory psalm. That is, imprecation, calling down, calling down God's curses on the enemy. And then what we'll find at the very end, it, it almost turns into a completely different psalm. That is what we'll see at the very end today and discuss. It's, it's a psalm of praise and thanksgiving and invitation. So as we walk through those, and contemplate how these point us to the language we're to understand in the life of faith. As I shared with you over the last couple of weeks, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament almost more than any other psalm other than Psalm 22. Seven different times in the New Testament, you'll find this psalm quoted, as if to say that if you're going to call yourself a Christian, maybe if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't call yourself a believer in Jesus. I'm especially grateful you're here that you can, you can eavesdrop on what we call, in this, in this case, the language of the life of faith. Because that is, the New Testament assumes that and commends this to us, assumes that we would know this is how we talk about who God is and who we are in light of Him. So, Beginning with the caption, we'll begin and read this together. It'll take about four, four, a little, four to five minutes uh, to read through it. It's okay if you kind of space out. It's all right. Uh, on a regular basis, I, I remind you, my goal on, on a Sunday morning is to intentionally test and expand your attention span for the Bible and to, to expand and stretch our attention span for the teaching of the Bible. And so it's okay if you kind of, if, if we stretch beyond the limits of your attention span, that's okay. When you make your way back, We'll say welcome and, and pay attention to the thing that grabs your attention as we, as we read through it together. 
to the choir master according to lilies of David. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord. At an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me, where the deep swallow me up, where the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them become a snare. And when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. For they persecute him whom you have struck down and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. 
When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him. The seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. In the last couple of weeks in this journey through lament, crying out to God for Him to answer what we presume here in the title, a psalm of King David sung by the people of God, is a declaration at the conclusion of this psalm that one day He will praise God again. While up to this point, we've seen David cry out in agony, hurry up, Lord, come fix what's broken. My enemies have lied about me. I am falsely accused. And even as he cried out to God, which is good and right, that this is the evil that the enemy has done against me. Let these awful things happen to them. And yet at the very end, we find him in the midst of this sorrow and despair, a commitment that one day he will praise God again. One day he will praise God and glorify God in such a way that all of creation, everything will join him. And even though he is in the midst of great sorrow, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the God of the Bible delights to turn things upside down. Redemptive reversals, they're often called, where things that are awful become the place of redemption and joy, where things that were once low, did you hear at the beginning of the section there in verse 29, his cry out to God after being in the lowest of lows, I am afflicted and in pain, verse 29 says, let your salvation, O God, set me on high. As we've seen, John chapter 15, one of the four gospels that begin the New Testament, Jesus quotes this psalm. He quotes this psalm and arguably Psalm 35, which has the exact same phrase at the very beginning. You saw that he, Jesus says that in, in the place where King David is crying out that they hate him without cause in verse 4, Jesus says ultimately this psalm, even though it's in reference to David and the, the trouble that he was experiencing, for the life, people of the life of faith who see with the eyes of faith, we see that Jesus tells us this psalm is ultimately about him. That the suffering servant who was betrayed, even though he was righteous and hated without cause, in this psalm is an appetizer, a precursor for what you and I as Christians think about Jesus. So if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, I want you to begin to contemplate the mystery that Christianity pronounces, that God does something here in the world through dramatic irony, that the righteous God of the universe who has knit you and I and all things together, had, has come and lowered himself. Jesus, in this case, has sunk as God into the depths. Into, did you hear the language of the mire, the mud? This is a metaphor for death, the pit, right? And what is it that Christians celebrate? And what does the language of this psalm give us? But that Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm, that the God of the universe has sunk into the pit, 
such that in a dramatic turn of events, as the, the script is flipped, we find out that all the things that the enemy deserved gets thrown on Jesus so that the enemies of God become his friends. And when that happens, we get to the section we're talking about today. When all that happens, when you see all that God has done, all of the things that cause sorrow become a moment and an instance for, did you hear it? Praise and celebration. If I were to boil this down into one thing here that might be just an encouragement, if you hear anything else, for many of you in this room, you have come into this place at great cost. You have made it to this place this morning, and this is not the best week, the best day, or the best time in your life. And I have hope for you. We serve and trust a God who delights to turn awful stories into stories of victory and vindication. I don't don't know what you carry with you this morning, but we serve a God who has come to be with us and for us in Christ so that whatever burden you carry does not get the last word. Sorrow, suffering, despair, betrayal, lies, difficulty, affliction and pain, verse 29, do not get the last word over us. The pit, the mire, death because of Christ, does not even get the last word. So as I shared with you, as you acknowledge the pain and the sin and brokenness in the world that the life of faith here invites us to acknowledge, you might be stuck there, but this psalm doesn't end there. And so for us, the the first reference that we saw in the caption of David and some sort of distress that he and God's people were experiencing gives voice to our experience in the world. And then... We saw the kind of the second reference that ultimately if this is about Jesus, then there's even something more powerful when we consider the, the suffering that Jesus endured and the praise that ultimately we're led into at the end of the psalm. So in that sense, you see a magnification, quite literally the word magnify that begins that section, an, an exhortation, a, a commitment that I will praise God and other people will praise God with me. And then what we find is an invitation. So. Let's walk through this together. As we acknowledge pain, as this psalm has helped us to confess what is true, what is broken, and sin and brokenness, we are also anticipating praise, so much that we appeal and invite others to join us. So, God's saving grace turns lament into praise. Look at verse 29. It's the transition point into this last section. It's hard to say whether it's the end, you might, depending on your translation, you, uh, the verse 29 might be connected to the paragraph above it, or it might be connected to the paragraph below it. That's the, that's the translator's way of saying, we're not really sure where this one goes, right? It either simultaneously serves as an end to the, the two sections we've seen up to this point, and a beginning to the other, or it stands alone. Either way, it kind of, it sits there, and as ESV, you'll see it probably is set apart, it just sits by itself. That's their way of saying... Well, maybe. Maybe it goes to the, maybe, maybe it's the end of the other section, maybe it's the beginning of the other. So here, here we go. That's when we read it all together. But it begins the last section and ends the section before by declaring a summary that sounds like the very first verse, right? I'm in pain. I am afflicted. And then a cry out to God, oh God, let your salvation set me on high, right? I've been low. Did you hear the language, the metaphorical, the, the poetic containers? I've been low. I've been sinking into the mud and the mire, right? The, the floods have come over me. God, don't let that happen. And then finally, the last section ends with saying, okay, God, now that, I, now that I've confessed to you how low I am, God, set me on high. 
Put me, put me on a high place. Get me out of the mire and the pit. And he says, let your salvation, that is, let the, let the thing that you alone can do, you alone can vindicate me. You alone can protect my reputation. You alone can silence the lies of the accuser. You alone can do all of these things to my enemy, and you alone can deliver me. And your salvation then will lift me out. It will set me on high. It will redeem me from this pit. And then what follows, beginning in verse 30, is a commitment. What a drastic change of tone, right? A drastic change of tone. I will praise. Not only will I praise, look at verse 34. Heaven and earth. He's crying out to heaven, earth, join me. Join me in praising God for his salvation that set me on high. God's saving grace turns lament into praise. Now notice, we don't have any evidence that the situation changed. Now, it didn't say, thank you, God, that my enemies got destroyed. Like, it, it doesn't say, thank you, God, you delivered me. Thank you, God, that my enemies were, were wiped out. It doesn't say any of those things. It's as if he's crying out a commitment to praise, even though he's in the middle of the source of his lament. I am afflicted. I mean, this, this, is, this will drastically change your life. Just, just to see these two statements, one after the other, they are simultaneously true. They are side by side. Do you hear the first phrase of 29 and 30? I am inflicted, and yet what? I will praise. That might blow your mind right there. I am afflicted and in pain, and yet I will praise God. I will praise God, and yet I am afflicted and in pain. Welcome to the mystery of living the life of faith in a broken and fallen world where the cause for suffering and distress is real. In many ways, as I would share with you, uh, this is one of a few examples of this, but the Christian community has the vocabulary and, and in this case, the understanding to talk about and think about some things that the rest of the world is perplexed by, namely, that things really are broken. And then in Christian community, a grace-filled community, when someone says, my sin is awful, we don't go like, oh, no, it's not that bad. <laughs> right? When someone in, in gracious community says, my life is terrible, we don't go like, oh, it's not that bad. We say, you're right. It's worse than you think. And yet. And so while we have the language to not dismiss, have you ever felt that way? Like, have you ever, have you ever, have you ever felt like things are awful and the people around you kind of dismiss it? Like, eh, you'll be okay, right? Look on the bright side, right? Think of it as like a deep and grace-filled community informed by the Psalms here won't do that. They'll say, you're right. It is terrible. And, and we, we weep with those who weep. We mourn with those who mourn. Because in some sense, we've only, we've only scratched the surface of how awful things really are. And yet, we have hope. And yet, I will praise God with a song. I will magnify Him. Why? Because His salvation has set me on high. Even in that distress, we cry out to God because we know that that distress will not get the last word. God's saving grace makes it so. God's work for us in Jesus Christ guarantees this. Such that in the same way, 
that the cry of Jesus from the cross as he experienced dereliction and devastation like you and I could never imagine, as he bore the penalty that you and I deserved for our sin, his cry from the cross, a feeling of being abandoned, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is not the last thing that he has said. And in the same way that his friends who betrayed him and who were mourning, and because they, had, they knew they had let him down, that, that sense of mourning and distress did not get the last word. And who knows what the people said when they rolled that tomb over, or that stone over the tomb that they'd placed Jesus' cold, dead, rotting body in. Right? Not rotting, technically. To fulfill prophecy, it didn't reach decay. But rigor mortis had set in. This was a dead body. They rolled the stone over and probably said something like, ooh, Right? And whatever they said wasn't the last word spoken about Jesus, was it? So also, we know that even in lament and deep loss, because Jesus was not abandoned to the grave, but resurrected victorious over sin, death, and hell, so also, even in lament, you and I know God's saving grace will bring about a time of praise. Even even though we can't see it, even though we often doubt it. Also, God's saving grace turns isolation into rich community. You have to go back a little bit, but do you remember the language we saw two weeks ago? And do you remember, you probably heard it as we reread it, that, that because he was experiencing distress, did you hear what had happened? He said, I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. That is, his distress had somehow brought isolation. And you know how this works. Anytime you experience loss or disappointment, you feel distant from the people around you. And here's the thing, that might be true of you even this morning. Like the deep pain and distress that you feel right now, the deep sorrow and loss that you feel right now, probably make, it feels weird being around so many people because that's what distress and pain does. It makes us feel abandoned and alone. It causes us to want to push people away. But did you hear what's going to happen? What used to be an occasion for sackcloth and mourning in isolation turns into evidently rich community. Did you hear that? Ultimately, verse 32, other humble people. Now, now again, when he says the humble here, the humble will see it, that is, the see that God has delivered and not abandoned him. He's not talking about people who just, right, who, who are, who, that's, he's, not talking about like, he's not talking about like a, a feature or a, spirit, a fruit of the Spirit or like, oh, there's a humble person. He's talking about low, people who have been humbled, right? So the language here is those who are also experiencing a deep low in their life will see it and then they will be glad. They will join him in his gladness. And so where he was once an alien and separate from his family, evidently other people who experience sorrow will be his new family. They're going to be glad with him. And so he invites them to do just that. You who seek God, do you want hope? Do you want answers? Do you want comfort? Let your hearts be revived, for the Lord hears the needy. And he goes from saying that, oh man, you know, I'm all alone, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an I'm a joke to the drunkards outside the gate. Now, he says, this is going to draw us together. What God does, his saving grace, is going to turn what, our isol- what seems like isolation into ultimately a rich community. Friend, whenever you, are, whenever you feel alone, skip to the end of the Bible. Revelation, the first six chapters of Revelation, arguably the first eight, are nothing but a story of a massive reunion of all the people drawn around the throne of God. And all of them sing what we sang just a moment ago. Worthy is the Lamb. Our isolation that we experience regularly, our loneliness that we experience regularly, has an end date. 
It has an expiration date. It will go bad. God's saving grace replaces desolation with restoration. Now, up to this point in the psalm, right, we've heard about how awful things are. There's lies that have been said against him. He's been falsely accused. Now, he, he makes mention in the first few verses, now, you, Lord, you know I'm not perfect. I, I have folly, but the thing that I'm being accused of, I'm not guilty of. And as a result, evidently, his, like the reproach that's on him and on God's people causes him to wish that God would come and destroy all of them, wipe them out. But at the end here, did you see what happens? The place where they were experiencing desolation, he says, ultimately, God's going to restore that. It's not just him. Did you catch that? Heaven and earth is going to join, join me. The seas and everything that moves in them. Verse 35, for what? God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people shall dwell there and possess it. This was a song we, we, we trust by most scholars' accounts here that, that was sung by those who were in exile into Babylon, those who had experienced great sorrow and tragedy. What, what happens following the, the fall of, of David and uh, the, the fall of an, the fracturing of his own family and then of even the kingdom into a northern and southern kingdom left people feeling desolate. They were outcasts. They were quite literally deported to, to foreign pagans, and, and he, they, they had to make their way through that. And this was a psalm they would regularly repeat and listen to the refrain at the end. God is going to restore us. God's going to bring us back home. God is going to put things back together. God's saving grace replaces retraction with expansion. Now, up to this point in the psalm, did you hear he's, he's, he's retreating? He's drawing back into himself, right? He experiences a sinking down into the depths. And yet at the end of the psalm, did you see what happens? The praise that he knows he will experience will expand to heaven and earth, to everything that's in the sea. That's a lot. We could spend days just talking about, hey, did you think about all the stuff, all the plankton, all right, yeah, everything, all the things, what about the stuff at the bottom? There's no light. We don't even, I don't even know what's down there. They're evidently going to praise God. And what once was, I mean, just, just think of the picture. The place that was a, a, symbol and, right, a symbol of death. He was sinking into the mire and the depths of deep waters. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? He was sinking in. Lord, don't let me sink into the muddy waters and the water come over me. And what does he say? One day, sink or not, everything in the waters will praise God. God is going to deliver me in such a way that even the mud I'm sinking into in the sea will be praising God because God will save these people and restore them. Now, here's some principles, I think, that for those of us who know that ultimately this desire for praise, this longing for restoration is satisfied in Jesus. Here's what we also know. Praise and magnification are greater than sacrifice. Did you, did you catch that in verse 31? He says, I'm going to praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. And this will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. So if you think in terms of knowing our sin and knowing that someone should pay for them, this is a, think of the Old Testament picture of, of going into the very presence of God only by the shed blood of a, of a sacrificed animal. Now, here's what I, I want to encourage you. Maybe if you're in this room and you're like, man, it's 2022, that's archaic, that's pagan, that's so primitive, 
all the sacrificing and, and bloodshed. We're, we're so beyond that. And I just want to push back on you. That is not true. Whenever you are wronged in the depths of your soul, you don't go like, well, I hope, I, I hope things turn out well for them. Right? When you see great injustice in the world, you don't say, like, well, look on the bright side. In the depths of your soul, what do you want? Blood. And you can act like time and space and 2,000 years have somehow advanced us, right? You can act like advances in technology have helped us to outgrow that and manage that. But friend, when you experience that, you're, when, you, when you feel the sense of loss and isolation and betrayal, your first instinct is to cry out for blood. Someone must pay. Friend, don't act like we've advanced beyond this. In many ways, we're in our peak form on this one, right? In many ways, as a culture, crying out for blood, man, we're, we're really getting pretty good at this. Like, crying out for atonement, oh my goodness, we're, we're killing it. That's not, that's not the good word to say on that. That's not... <laughs> Oops, <laughs> right? So if you're in this room and you're thinking like, well, we're beyond that, man, that's not true. I want you to know that those instincts for crying out for blood and justice are actually good and righteous. Now, when they're in our hands, we cry out for blood in unrighteous ways. We want vengeance and not justice. But I want you to know that in many ways, you, you reflect the very good and righteous heart of God. Because after all, if God sees what's broken in the world and doesn't mean to do something right about it, doesn't mean to fix it, if God doesn't mean to restore, if God doesn't mean to make these things right that are now wrong, then you shouldn't trust him. And so that picture of sacrifice, that picture of, of one, you know what this feels like when someone hurts someone you love or hurts you. When you experience that kind of suffering, you're like, I, someone must pay. This is not right. You know what this feels like, but notice what he says. Praise. Experiencing what God has done and magnifying him as a result is actually greater than sacrifice. Think about that. He's saying a day is going to come where God is going to make right what's wrong and I won't even want vengeance anymore. I'll just want to thank God for what he's done. Can you imagine, like for some of you who carry deep grudges, right? You have a huge chip on your shoulder. You are mad at the world and you want someone to pay. Can you imagine a time, just, just dream with me. Use a sanctified part of your imagination. Imagine what it'll be like when one day you won't be angry about it. And instead, you'll say, I'm just going to praise God for who he is and what he's done. But in this also, I think for us, is, a, is an invitation to consider a deep and right gospel response. That ultimately... Praise is greater. Praising God for who He is and praising God for what He has done is greater than anything we can do. That's what true faith is. Trusting yourself to Jesus is saying what He has done is finished and sufficient, more so than anything I could do. This is a rebuke and an encouragement at the same time for many of you. Maybe you were raised in a religious background, and even now you're like, okay, what, do, what should I do? What, should I, what do I need to do to make things right? What do I need to do to be right? What do I need to do to be better, right? And, and here's what, like, he, he's saying, you just praise God for what he's done. How about you stop being so arrogant and thinking that you could, like, repay God? And maybe you just thank him. Maybe you just stop and praise him. And maybe the greatest act of faith for you will be no act at all. You will stop trying to please God completely. 
and you will say, God, thank you. God, thank you for the pleasure and delight you pour out on me in Jesus. Thank you that I am now freed from needing to do anything. All there is now is to respond and praise for what you have done. Praising God for what he has done is greater than anything we can do. Greater than any sort of religious response. Realizing that what God has done is sufficient. That his saving grace alone, that his loving kindness alone is all we need. This is it. This is what it means to experience the good news of Jesus. That we dispense with striving to please God and to pleasing others. And we rest. We rest. He's done everything we need to do. He has done all the things we could never do for ourselves. And it's actually more pleasing to the Lord when we acknowledge that in praise than it is when we come to the Lord as though we have something we can contribute. This will please the Lord. Don't you love that? One of the questions we, we've asked in my own household, but probably we've asked you, if you've been, been in a gospel community with, you, with me, or one of the best questions you can ask someone is like, hey, how does the Lord feel about you right now? How does God feel about you? Uh, one, of the, one of the studies we do regularly, we think about what it means to be a gospel-centered community, we ask that question. Like, if you, if you picture God's face as, it, as God looks at you, what's the expression on his face when God looks at you? And so here's what we find out. Anything other than pleasure, as you imagine God's face looking at you, is imagining God apart from the finished work of Christ. You're right. If, if you imagine God looking at you through your deeds, through your sacrifices, think about it, through horns and hooves, you can imagine God being like, what? You sinned against a righteous God and you brought me a horn and a hoof? Okay. And in any other way that we might imagine the face of God looking at us apart from Christ will lead us to think that he is not pleased with us, that you better clean up your act. But friend, do you hear this? When you see what God has done for you, when you experience the pleasure of God, not that he, would, he like tolerates you and he's, you know, okay, all right, I tolerate forgiving. No, he is eager to forgive. He is eager. While you were dead in your trespasses, he sent his son to pursue you and win you back. So the psalmist says, surely goodness and mercy will what? Follow me all the days of my life. Run as fast as you can. But friend, when you realize this, you see the pleasure of God that he delights to forgive. He delights to restore. He delights to draw us back in. It frees us from the, the paltry attempt at pleasing God with sacrifices. And when you experience that, or what, a, what a declaration of faith. God is pleased with my praise because he has offered all the things that I could not do on my own. Lastly, we see praise is contagious. It's intentionally contagious. I'm going to sing a song. I'm going to praise the Lord. It's going to be an evidence of the pleasure of God on me. And then people are going to see it and, be, and join in. The humble are going to see it. The other people who experience, right, who experience sorrow and distress, they're going to look and they're going to be like, man, if God, it's as if to say, like, well, if God would save that person, then cool. Like, there's hope for me. They will see that and they'll be glad such that he, he appeals to them and invites them and says, 
Let your hearts be revived. Because the Lord hears you in your need, and He does not despise you. I love that. Like when our, our nature is if, you know, if, we don't, if we don't have a lot of grace stored up and somebody asks us for something, our first response is like, again, right? Oh, just pause in those moments and just, and just stop and thank God that he's not like that. That when we, when we come to God in our need, he does not despise us. He doesn't go, oh, you again? He does not despise the needy. He doesn't despise his own. He loves it. He's so much better at it than we are. And the invitation even extends to all of creation. Let heaven and earth, the seas and everything in them, everything, all of the created order in some mysterious way is going to be invited in and participate in this pleasure of God and the praise of His grace. It's contagious. Now, I think this points us to Jesus in a couple of ways. Jesus draws in the downtrodden to joyful praise. If Jesus in John 15 is right, and this is all about him and a picture, a precursor to what he will do, then all of the sorrow of the psalms that we of the of this psalm as we've seen over the last couple of weeks that end in praise begin to whet our appetite for what we want Jesus to do for us, for what as Christians we have received freely in Christ. Namely, that all of the sorrows we've experienced, our our humiliation, the awful things that we endure, ultimately Jesus is drawing us especially into a joyful praise, a magnification of who He is because of what He has done. Also, Jesus' saving work restores the people of God and compels all creation to join them in praise. One of the benedictions we circle back to on a regular basis, Philippians 2, right? At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every, everything, every atom, every electron, quark, whatever to the smallest degree, will praise Jesus. And every, every galaxy, every multiverse, whatever, will, will bow at the greatness of Jesus. Everything. Everything is for Him and to Him, the New Testament tells us. All things are for His glory. They were created for that. And so Jesus and what He has accomplished to restore sinful people to a righteous God and restore all that's broken in the world back to its original perfection with God and His presence freely available for every single thing, that that ultimately is going to compel all creation to join in praise. The Apostle Paul tells the Romans that even creation is groaning like the pangs of childbirth. And you don't have to read much of the news to realize how true that is. Everything is crying out, fix this, make this right. And for those of us who have received this grace in Christ, now we can look and anticipate, even though things are not right right now, we can say with confidence, I know a day is coming. I know because He has redeemed me, because He has delivered me from my own sin, I know there's nothing he won't offer. Because he has not withheld his own son, there is nothing he will not offer. There is nothing he will not give to make all things right. Jesus' work for us, like this psalm, restores us as a people 
but also compels us to invite. Because Jesus ultimately deserves the praise of all creation for his redemptive work. Jesus deserves glory. First phrase, I will praise, I will magnify. Jesus does the thing that we wish would happen. Our deepest longings, that the wrongs would be made right, that perfect justice and righteousness would prevail, that real and true fairness, that real grace and mercy would be evident. Jesus grants us all of these things. So I want to end with just some conclusions, maybe some observations, not just about this one section, but in context, the whole, the whole of the psalm, right? And I have some encouragements, but also, I, I, like, I, I think there's exhortation here, but there's also just, I have some commendations to offer. That word magnify, we'll end on that, but that, that, that is to, when you think about magnification, quite literally means to grow or make larger, right? So a, magna, a magnifying glass makes something small larger, right? A telescope magnifies by making something far seem closer. A microscope makes something that's tiny seem larger, right? That's, in that sense, I will do the same thing with God. I will do whatever I can to make, for those who seem, who would say that God is far, I will do everything I can to, to, to remind them that He is near. For those that would think that God is small, we will do everything we can to make to make sure that people know that he is actually not small, but he is large, right? You get the idea? And that is our purpose now. And praise, the praise of God with song is one of the ways that we do this. Now, again, and I have an exhortation and a commendation. The exhortation is like, consider just a moment what it really means to sing together when we get together on a Sunday, Consider just, I hope we never, hope I never gloss over this, just how absurd that really is, right? Unless you're at a soccer game or a birthday party, people just don't really sing together, right? And yet we engage, and don't we engage in a powerful counterculture when we do that, that God has done something and we're going to sing about it. And if people, and again, if someone is like, oh, it's normal, we just say, no, you don't, no one sings. That's what makes musicals so crazy, Right? No one ever does that. Like maybe there's some people who are like they, they're preparing to do this. Maybe, maybe you're those people. Good for you. You're living in a musical. That's awesome. The majority of the world do not sing about things. Right? Grease lightning. You don't just, oh, I'm going to sing a song about a new car I got. What? No one breaks out in song when they fall in love like this. At least not very well. So in, realize the mystery. That people in the midst of a broken and fallen world, in the midst of distress and sorrow, would sing about God? Friend, don't don't overestimate what a mystery and what a powerful declaration that is. Let me commend you. This church models this so well. I'm so grateful for all the people on stage who lead us in this and over the last years have helped to build a culture of this. The way we talk about it is our goal then in light of the Psalms and this is, this is counterculture as well. Our goal is not performance, but participation. And that's hard because I know when, when, you, when you come into a room like this and there's lights and a stage, you can kind of slip into thinking, oh, we're here to perform or we're here to watch someone else perform. That's not true. The people on the stage are simply guiding us. Their job is not to perform for us. And we pray hard against that, right? That's, that's, hey, you're not impressing anyone. Jesus has impressed the Father. Now you get to just lead us, right? All they're doing is trying to keep us like 
on beat and keep us sort of on the right note, right? And that's, isn't that counterculturally powerful? In most other places, it's the talented people who sing. In the life of the church, it's the redeemed people who sing. And this is the cool part about that. One day, everyone on this stage will be fired. One day, I, one day, I will not have a job. I will not tell you about Jesus. I will be on my knees and I'll just say, he's over there. And everyone on this stage who's saying, like, sing, we'll all have glorified, perfected voices and bodies, and we'll just be singing with the angels in glorified way. And we will all be out of a job. So remember, what Jesus has done is greater than what you could do. It's greater than an ox, horns, and hooves, right? And so also, I want to commend this church for doing this. We sing together. May that always be the case. Praise God for the times when I, when I slip into here on a Sunday morning, and I'm feeling downtrodden, I'm feeling anxiety, I'm feeling the weight of my own sin and failure, and someone on the stage and a congregation of people seeing what's actually true. Thank you. Keep that up. May we continue to be a people that does this. We magnify God in praise. Not only that, but the Psalms, I believe here, give us a container for our life experiences to say what's actually true and to praise God in the midst of sorrow. Again, an exhortation and a commendation. This means that you and I are invited to, in some profound way, in the midst of our darkest hour, to turn away from ourselves and our circumstances and trust in what God will do. Because of what Jesus has done, we know that God ultimately will restore all things. Started with sinful, broken people, and it will end in every single atom and molecule. Everything, every tear will be wiped away. Here's my commendation. Some of you have done this incredibly well. If you're in this room, and maybe you think people in this room are singing because things are really going well for them, I invite you to get to know them a little better. There are people in this room that have, it's hard to talk about, they have modeled this for me. There are many of you who sing on a weekly basis, not because your life is great, but because God is great. And I am so deeply uplifted by that. Because I know, I have the privilege of knowing many of your stories. And I encourage you to get to know the people around you. I commend them to you people who are in this room having the worst week of their life in their marriage and their family who have experienced incredible loss, incredible pain, incredible disappointment. And I want to commend this group of people to you. They, they embody this psalm in a powerful way. And so I want to exhort you, you can do this. Don't be deceived. The people who sing around you on a Sunday morning here are not singing because their life is great. They're singing because Jesus is merciful. And it is a, what a powerful confrontation that is, isn't it? that our hope isn't just ultimately in our own experience, but that we have a hope beyond our present experience. And the psalmist here invites us to this, and I want to commend, and I pray that this continues to be the case. This makes us more thoughtful. This makes us more <laughs> hope-filled. This makes us more realistic about how awful the world really is, but it makes us more optimistic because we know that God delights in taking that which is low and lifting it up and taking that which seems to be high and dropping it down. The things of this world that we might hope in are passing away. Now, here's where I want to close in this. This reversal is probably nowhere better. This theme of what, right, the, 
He's saying, exalt me, lift me out. One of the most beautiful places I see this is in what we know, what we call the Magnificat. In Luke chapter 1, this is the this, this song of Mary. Um, Magnificat, right? Some of you grammar nerds, that's a Latin word for magnify. And so why is that? Because the first phrase that she utters is, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You hear what she's saying? I'm nobody. I'm not wealthy. I'm not well-known. And yet, people are going to remember me. God's going to do something. He's going to take the lowly and exalt them. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now here do you hear the reversal that she begins to anticipate? She just found out that she's going to give birth to the Savior of the universe. That's crazy, right? That's the flipping of the, man, would God, that God would come to be a human. It seems like he would come as like, I don't know, a king, a royal or famous person. Oh no, came to be a nobody so that nobodies would know that's exactly who he came to love and rescue. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. In the thoughts of their hearts, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry, do you hear the reversal? With good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Do you hear the echoes of the 69th Psalm and this powerful, inspired song of Mary? A day is coming. The God who entered into what's broken to make all things new is going to come back and finish the task. He has come the first time as a lowly baby in a manger for whom there was no room in the inn, right? So that those of us who are outcasts and don't feel like we fit in would know that God sees us, hears us, and knows. Did you hear it? He does not despise his own people. He hears the needy. And because he has entered in to do this thing for us, that lowly, humble sinners who do not deserve any of these blessings might receive them, we know that he will finish the task. He will come back. He will make all things new. I think there are two responses. In a minute here, we're going to sing of the resurrection of Jesus and all that Jesus has reversed for us. And so the first invitation for you is to do exactly what we find here. We're invited to sing. And don't worry, sometimes I know I'm I'm not able to sing either. That's why there's a congregation. Sometimes I, I can't muster the words, but people sing on my behalf. When I can't pray, they pray on my behalf. But a powerful word of faith could be to sing. Powerful thing. Don't, I mean, don't miss it. It could be a powerful act of faith this morning to sing, to say that the name of Jesus is sufficient, that the Father gives his delight and restoration to me in Jesus. That is an eternally powerful word. But maybe the second thing is maybe you're not there. Maybe you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Then here, here's my invitation to you. Consider just a moment what it would look like to sing. What would it take for you to sing? What gift, what grace would it take for you to, like a strange musical, just burst out in song? 
and consider the possibility that the deepest longings of your own heart for acceptance, for approval, forgiveness, for justice, for righteousness, for healing are all offered to us freely in Jesus. All freely offered to satisfy us in a way that we could have never possibly imagined. We cry out in distress. It's not because things are great. In fact, things are worse than you could imagine. Your heart and soul are in deep and darker places than even you are now currently aware. However, we know that there is a name above every name, the one who restores and heals, one who makes all things new, who gives his own blood to pay the price that we often demand. Yeah, things are worse than you can imagine, even you. But friend, your future because of Christ is brighter than you could have even imagined as well. And here's the wild part. Did you hear what happens? As all of creation and all of the people around are invited into it, get this. Anyone can get in on this. Anyone can get in on this. Every molecule, everything under the sea is invited, and so are we. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for the restoring work that you have done for us in Jesus. Thank you that the words of Jesus, that it is finished, are in many ways the, the fulfillment of this psalm. The empty tomb is the exclamation mark of your vindication. Thank you, Lord, that when we, we consider the words of this psalm, when we consider a righteous servant, a suffering servant, who though he was falsely accused, is vindicated by you, that we are looking at the very character of God. Might we begin to marvel at this mystery and sing and magnify you for it. That when we see the suffering servant Jesus vindicated in resurrection, we are looking at the very heart of God for his people. God, bring that restoration now that we might praise. Bring that restoration to our relationships, to our world. Bring that, relation, bring that restoration to, to places that are deeply broken and hurt in our hearts right now. Restore our bodies. Restore our minds. Restore all things that sin is broken. God, thank you that you will ultimately answer this prayer in the affirmative. And we will praise you forever and ever. We will praise you. Thank you that this is true and sure for us. In Jesus' name, amen.